0: I'll encourage you if you brought uh, a Bible, grab one, Uh, you're going to need it for our next few minutes together, and you can turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, and we are going to be in chapter 5 this morning. Um, Oftentimes when problems come our, our way, I think lots of people prescribe to the idea that if I just ignore it, it'll eventually go away right? If you're honest, many of you live like that, (laughs) right? If I just, maybe it's a family issue. Well, if we just kind of sweep it under the rug and never talk about it, then it'll just go away. Um, I know many men who, who use this kind of life motto when it comes to physical things, right? And, and if you're a wife, you might, yeah, my husband never goes to the doctor, right? Ah, oh, my arm's dislocated, but if I just kind of ignore it, it probably will go back in, and then I'll just kind of go back to my life. Uh, I remember years ago when I was a teen, uh, I skateboarded lots, and I had kind of a skateboarding accident and really wrecked my back. But for months, I was like, if I just don't think about it, um, it'll eventually get better, Right, and did that work? No, it just got worse and worse and worse and worse, and then eventually I had to go for physio and all those kind of things to try and get my back uh, a, a little bit better, I, and sometimes it can have disastrous results. I had a friend um, in Maple Ridge whose father had some health things and was just feeling miserable, and he's, he just said, ah, oh, it'll probably go away, and it, and it ended up being uh, cancer, and the doctor had said, if you had come in six months ago, we could have actually done things about it, and his, his dad ended up dying, because he lived by that wall, it'll just, it'll be fine. If I just ignore it, don't think about it, it'll go away. Um, We do that spiritually as well uh, when it comes to uh, sin or things in our lives or others' lives. Sometimes it's just like, just put the blinders on. Let's just not talk about it. Let's not think about it. But actually, the best thing you can do is, is address the problem And even when you think about it, for physical problems, sometimes you have to have painful surgery and a painful procedure and painful recovery, but in the long run, it's for your benefit and it's for your health. So we are now entering a very pointed section of the book of 1 Corinthians where Paul is going to address head on some of these significant issues of sin going on. And so we've, we've, we've studied that the, kind of one of the big issues going on was pride and arrogance and this false idea of wisdom, but that had led to other significant sin issues in the church in Corinth. And so Paul is just going to uh, address them head on. So I need to warn you, for the next few weeks, it might feel like a root canal, um, But it's so necessary for your spiritual health and for the health of the church as a whole. Paul is going to just address sexual immorality. He's going to address lawsuits, prostitution, uh, marriage issues, just one after the other. But specifically in chapter 5, there is a case of sexual sin going on in the Corinthian church that the church is just not dealing with. It's almost like if we just ignore it, it'll just go away. It'll solve itself. We don't want to talk about it. So it begs the question then, how should the church respond to or handle sin within our community? Now, I don't mean uh, individually. We know individually what the answer for sin is, is that we confess it and we repent of it, and we turn to Jesus, but we're kind of asking a broader question. When sin happens in our community, a community of believers, how do we respond? What do we do when, when, when there's just sin going on in the church? And so Paul in chapter five, I think he gives us four things the church does when it comes to sin within the community. Uh, and so the first is this, what do we do about sin in the community? Number one, we mourn it. So, verse one says this It is actually reported that there is sexually immoral, sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Um, those words at the beginning of verse one, where Paul says it's actually reported, it, it's meant to indicate astonishment. On Paul's part, uh, Paul is kind of like, I cannot believe that this is happening. That's that's the, the the wording. He's astonished. Paul is shocked that this is going on. And the word sexual immorality, when he says that there's there's sexual immorality among you, it's the Greek word pornēia. And uh, a very literal reading means prostitution. But in the, in the New Testament, it's what scholars call a junk drawer term, right? We all have the drawer where it's like, where should I put this? Throw it in the drawer, right? There's everything, batteries, a fork, a calendar, whatever, right? You all have that. And the word porneia is a junk drawer term, meaning in the New Testament, it's used to describe literally any expression of extramarital sexual sin, so it can be used to describe a, a variety of sexual sin, so it can be used as kind of a blanket statement, but also it can be used to pinpoint a very specific kind of sin, and that's how it's being used here. Paul says this kind of sexual immorality that's going on, uh, it's, it's something that pagans don't even do. So you got—you got, you got to know that it's bad, right? And he tells us, a man... At the end of verse 1, has his father's wife. So what was happening in the church is a man was sleeping with his stepmother. Uh, We know that it's the stepmother because in verse 1, the woman is called his father's wife, not called his mother. And so here is a case where perhaps a man remarried and this is a, a, a man's stepmother. But any case, they're sleeping together. And the wording that's used indicates that it wasn't just like, oh, it was a one-time thing and they've, they've stopped. When it says a man has his father's wife, it's, it indicates an ongoing relationship that's happening. So what Paul's dealing with is not a one-time hookup, this is a continual depraved relationship that's going on in the church. Paul says it's so depraved, pagans don't even do this, guys. I mean, and you got to know, that's saying a lot because the the city of Corinth was known for how loose their sexual ethics were. It was kind of like anything goes in Corinth. I won't read it because, I don't know, Uh, but there was actually sayings about Corinthian women. That they're like, they're up for anything. That's, that's in the ancient world. That's how people saw Corinth. Anything goes in Corinth. Like Vegas, right? What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. But Paul says, pagans aren't even doing what you guys are doing. Um, look at some of these quotes. Gaius, who's the second century Roman jurist, he says, it is illegal to marry a father's or mother's sister, nor can I marry her who was at one time my mother-in-law or stepmother. Um, Cicero, who, was, who lived prior to Paul, he expressed disgust uh, when, it says, uh, when a mother-in-law marries a son-in-law, it is unbelievable. So these are like pagan people who are like, okay, even that's too far. Um, uh, uh, Catullus, who was a sexually liberal poet, he called it abhorrent, that kind of sexual behavior. So Paul, Paul says, like, listen, even the lost people around you don't live like this. And I cannot believe that one of you who claims to be a follower of Jesus is, is participating in this kind of sexual immorality. But it gets worse. Verse 2, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul says, to make matters worse, not only is this going on, but the Corinthians are just letting it happen. So, yes, the sin is sexual immorality, but the other sin is just the church's indifference to it. Well, whatever. What are you going to do? And Paul says that they're acting arrogantly. And there's a few um, uh, thoughts about what Paul could mean. Maybe they thought, well, now that we're Christians, we're free from normal moral constraints in chapter 6 verse 12 paul's gonna quote a corinthian saying where the corinthians used to say all things are lawful for me and so maybe that was the thinking corinthian christians they're going well whatever we're free now so we can do what we want maybe they thought that this kind of sexual freedom was an implication of god's grace right god will forgive us so just let it happen Maybe they thought it was this this kind of worldly wisdom that they had that maybe we're just kind of above all of those social taboos. And maybe sexual behavior is just irrelevant when it comes to our spirituality. Whatever the reasoning is, they're arrogantly not dealing with it. They're just going, whatever, Paul. What are you going to do? Rather than mourning that this kind of sexual depravity was going on among believers, it was being tolerated, and perhaps there's some indication that maybe it was even being celebrated. It's just a result of their pride and arrogance. Look how free we are. Paul tells them that, number one, they should be mourning the sin that is going on in their church, and the person that's doing it should be removed, which we'll get to in in a minute. So my first point is, how how do we respond to sin in the church? We should mourn it, and and mourning implies sorrow over the sin of others, and actually it implies confessing it as, as if it was your own, like you're feeling the weight of it so much that That you're mourning it and just in sorrow and agony over the sin that you see uh, uh, around you. It's actually not primarily a feeling. Mourning, uh, it indicates that you actually want to do something about the, the sin going on. It's crying out to God for mercy. Being overcome with grief. That that kind of stuff is happening among God's people. So rather than that, rather than the Corinthians being overcome with grief and mourning like how can this be happening in the church? They were just ignoring it or maybe justifying it or perhaps even celebrating it. Now, we can look down on the Corinthian church and we go, how could they let such an evil disgusting thing happen? But listen, be honest. We we do this all the time. We make excuses we turn a blind eye, we just kind of like, well, whatever, that's their life, I don't want to get involved, I'm not going to judge them. We, we do that stuff all the time. Even the language that we use about sin indicates that we actually don't take sin that seriously because I hear it all the time, well, I messed up, well, I slipped up, well, I had a whoopsie this week, or whatever, right? We use language to avoid saying, like, I sinned against a holy God this week, right? Because we just... We just don't take it seriously. I think one of the reasons is that we have a very low view of God's holiness, and we have a very high view of ourselves, and so we don't view sin as awful and terrible as it actually is. Like God, and the reason I know this, like God's holiness, he is perfect and holy and righteous. The reason I know that we have a low view of God's holiness is when we see God's justice on display or people being punished in Scripture, oftentimes we say, well, that seems harsh. That's not fair. How could God do that to these poor people? Rather than, why does God show mercy to any of us? Why is He so gracious? He's so holy and righteous and perfect. Why does He put up with wicked sinners at all? But the opposite, we say the opposite. We say, God seems so mean when he does stuff like that. See, low view of God's holiness. Like, what was Isaiah's response in Isaiah 6 when he saw the holiness and the glory of God? Did he go, oh, this is really cool? No, he said, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. So our first response when we see sin in the community of believers, it should be that we mourn it, like a deep anguish that that is going on in the church. Secondly, when we see sin in the church, number two, we should deal with it. Uh, Verse three says, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Um, One of the reasons that we preach through books of the Bible is that we have to deal with stuff like this. This is not fun. But Paul says, okay, you you need to mourn sin, but secondly, church, you have to deal with it. And Paul, I love that Paul says, even though I'm not there, I'm there in spirit, I've already pronounced judgment on this man. And then he says, verse four, when you're assembled... And Paul's spirit is present. I don't think he means some kind of mystical thing where his spirit transfers over to the... I I think he says, when my spirit is present, when the letter that I wrote you is being read in front of the church, it's like I'm with you, right, through my words, you are to, with the power of Jesus, deliver this man over to Satan. So look, Paul has this authority, right, to, to declare something like this in his letter, but it's all done in the name of Jesus, and it sounds so harsh. Deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. What does Paul mean? Paul means essentially: kick this man out of the church. Um, in 2 Corinthians 4:4, 4, 4, Satan is called the God of this world. So it's like that they're removing this man who's caught in this unrepentant sin and putting him outside the church in the domain of darkness and saying, you don't belong to the church anymore. And the whole point we're told is that his flesh will be destroyed, but don't miss it. The second part so that his spirit will be saved. So the whole point of doing this is so that the person comes to their senses repents of their sin and returns to Jesus and is welcomed back into the community. So the point is not just sinner, boom, sinner, boom. No, the point is we're going to actually remove you from the church so then you, your eyes are open and you go, what am I doing? I'm living in sin. I've just been removed from the church. I need to confess and repent. And then the, the goal is, is restoration, that that person's soul is saved um Jesus himself speaks of a very similar process of church dip- discipline in Matthew 18. Um he says this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's where it starts. Right? If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. You don't you don't have to go any farther. If you if you say you've sinned against me, I'm hurt, if he if he confesses, if he listens to you, boom, the problem is solved. But Jesus says if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Same principle. Let him be removed from the church. It's, It's like he's not even a Christian anymore if he just continues to refuse to listen and confess and repent. So what Paul and Jesus are saying is, When someone is caught in unrepentant sin and they're unwilling to confess it and turn from it, we remove them from the church and we treat them as an unbeliever, but it is always, always, always done with the hope and intention of that person coming to their senses, repenting and being restored. So church discipline um, is not something that happens in a lot of churches. Just because who would want to do this? It's not fun. Uh, I remember it, at the church I was at in Maple Ridge, there was this um, woman who was kind of a lifelong, you know, she was there when the church was built kind of thing. Um, and she uh, was participating in a lot of d- divisiveness and dissension and slander and gossip. And I remember I went to the leadership of the church and I said, Something has to be done about this woman. So it's, uh, she's living in sin. And the response that I got was, well, she's kind of such a pillar in the church, and she's so well-connected that it would probably cause more issues than good, right? It's just kind of like we just don't want to deal with it. So many churches are like that. It's just kind of, well, if we just kind of ignore it, maybe it'll go away on its own, and here's, here's what adds to the problem. In our day and age, if someone, let's say, is caught in sin and is confronted with it, usually, and I've seen this happen, it's, well, you guys are judgmental. I'm out of here. And they just go to the church down the road. We just don't like the idea of being held accountable, right? We live in a very individualistic, non judgmental, no one can ever point out any sin or flaws in my life because I'm just too fragile to deal with it. And so we just don't like that. So we, we never do this kind of thing. But like sin in the church is such a serious problem in the New Testament. I mean, in Acts 5, two people are struck down dead by the Holy Spirit for lying. And we would go, that seems harsh. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, some of you are actually getting sick, and some of you are dying because you're, you're uh, abusing the communion table. You're getting drunk, and you're dishonoring other brothers and sisters. So some people in the church were dying because of their sin, but we just kind of, we just kind of ease back from it because we go, ah, it's just uncomfortable, and it's awkward, and believe me, it is, Um, Over my years of of being a a pastor, I've been involved in a few uh, church discipline cases. And, And if I'm just honest, it sucks. It's not fun. I've made those phone calls. We need to talk. I've had those meetings. But it is so necessary to deal with sin in the church. Paul says, right, this is going on. You should be mourning this sin and then you should be dealing with it head on. Remove the person who is not repenting and turning back to Jesus. Treat them like an outsider. Cast them out so that he comes to his senses. So I've, I've seen cases where this actually works. <laughs> like, we shouldn't be shocked that, that it works because Jesus told us to do it. And you get to this, this stage in church discipline, and I've seen it's like scales fall off someone's eyes and they go, What am I doing? And they repent and they turn to Jesus. And I've seen it when the hardness of heart just gets harder and harder and they say, fine, you guys are so judgmental, we're out of here. But the point is, regardless of the reaction and the outcome, we're commanded, deal with the sin. And it leads to the third point. Why? Why, why Paul, are you so adamant that we should deal with sin? Why, why should we do that? Number three, so that it doesn't spread. What do we do when, when there's sin in the church? Don't let it spread. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So why is Paul so adamant that we exercise church discipline on this man, right? Why is he saying, Corinthian church, you have to cast this man out. Discipline him spiritually. He was committing sexual immorality. It's because Paul knows sin is a toxin. It is a cancer that infects and can ruin an entire community. Left alone and ignored, sin will silently just spread destruction in the church, And that's kind of Paul's whole point with his illustration of leaven. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Uh, so back in that day, um, they didn't often use yeast. And so for those of you over COVID who were like, I'm going to be a sourdough bread maker, right? Uh, I have nothing else to do. This is kind of what Paul's saying, what, right? When you make sourdough, you keep a piece, right, the starter, and you save it for the next batch. That's leaven, right? They would make bread, and then they would keep a, a, a piece of it, uh, and they would save it. And then for the next batch, they would put it in. And the whole point is that the leaven just works its way through the whole, uh, the whole dough, and leaven throughout the Bible is often used to refer to evil and sin in the way that it spreads. And so Paul says, you need to cleanse out the old leaven and be a new lump. Isn't that great? You, just, <laughs> you guys are lumps but be a new lump, Uh, but he says, cleanse it out, and then he uses this example from Passover, and that's what they would do, that's what the Jewish people would do, it would be a seven-day festival during Passover, the Jews were forbidden to eat anything with leaven in it, and so what they would do is they would clean out their houses of every bit of leaven, and then throw it out, and then they would eat unleavened bread, right, they're cleansing leaven out of their houses, and then Paul says, well, Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, we're not celebrating Passover every, every year like the Jews do. We celebrate Jesus, but it's this festival, not with the old leaven of evil and malice, but we're having unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So what is Paul's whole point as he makes this comparison? I think he's saying, if you were a Jewish person, how could you celebrate Passover while ignoring the command to purge out the old leaven? You couldn't. So, how can the church celebrate new life in Jesus while allowing this old leaven of evil and sin to spread in the church? Paul says, you can't do it. On the basis of Jesus' crucifixion, God's people, we keep an ongoing feast of celebration of God's forgiveness. And how do we celebrate? We celebrate with sincerity and truth and trying to live holy lives pleasing to God. So here's the problem. If these Corinthians don't nip this in the bud, it will spread. It's inevitable. Sin spreads. And this attitude that they're having towards this specific sin would affect the entire Christian community's view towards all sin. Well, if that's allowed, why can't I do this? And it'll spread and spread and spread and spread. Um, James 3 is a great example of sin spreading. James says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Well, it's just jealousy. It's just selfish ambition. No, sin spreads. So, what do we do as a church where sin is evident? Well, we attempt to discipline the person quickly so that their sin doesn't spread and infect the community. And then, lastly, what do we do about sin in the church is that we hold one another to a high standard. Verse nine, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what, what, what have I... To do with judging outsiders. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So I love that you can see Paul's trying to clarify something that he had written in an earlier letter. Um, I, I think I mentioned that in the introduction, is that Paul has previously written this church. We just don't have those letters anymore. But he says, I wrote you. And this is what Paul had said in his first letter to this church. Don't associate with sexually immoral people. And what the Corinthians had heard when they read that was, okay, we need to separate from any and all sexually immoral people inside the church or outside the church. Everyone we have to kind of pull back from. And Paul says, no, that's not what I meant, right? He he clearly says, I didn't mean the sexually immoral and the greedy and, and the idolaters of the world Paul's saying, I'm not saying separate from non-Christians because do you know where you would need to go? To a different planet, Paul says. You'd have to leave the world if you're like, I can't be around any sexually immoral people or any sinners. Well, call Elon Musk and get a rocket and go to Mars because that's impossible, Paul says. What, he's, what he means is don't associate with someone who claims to be a Christian, a brother or sister who is guilty of those things, sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler, Paul says, that's what I meant. Don't even eat with people like that. And the reasoning is, God is the one who judges those outside the church. It's people inside the church that you and I are called to judge, purge the evil from among you. So, Here's what Scripture is saying. Followers of Jesus, if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, you don't walk around our culture judging sinners who don't follow Jesus and don't care what the Bible says. That's not your job. Your job is to hold brothers and sisters in Christ to a high standard of holy living, to judge sin within the church, among believers. But here's the problem Oftentimes, Christians, we do the exact opposite. We judge. We love to judge all the sin in the world among non-believers, and then we turn a blind eye to sin going on with the person sitting next to me in the pew. Uh, many of you grew up in communities like this. Um, Where you say, well, we're going to separate ourselves, we're going to withdraw from this evil, wicked society, we're not going to associate with lost people, and we're going to judge those wicked sinners, and yet, do you want to know where sin runs really rampant? In those exact communities. Because we're so busy judging the world that we just let sin go on in the church and in our communities. So listen, I I just want to be so clear. As a Christian, it's not your responsibility to force biblical morals on a society that's lost. It's not your job to try and Christianize unbelievers by forcing them to obey a Bible that they don't even believe in. That's not up to you. God will judge the world. So let me give you an illustration uh, that's made up that might help. Let's say there's a lovely Christian couple uh, with a couple of kids, and they attend a great church. But in their city, uh, a new bakery opens up and it's run by a lesbian couple. Pro- it probably could happen, right? It's a very common scenario. And so, because of that Christian couple's uh, biblical morality, they saw that, that kind of lifestyle is sinful, and I'm not going to support it. And so, you know what? We are never buying food from that bakery, we'll show them. And maybe, I, don't, I hope they wouldn't do this, but maybe we'll pick it and we'll say, we don't want this kind of evil in our community and blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to tell all my Christian friends, no one support the gay bakery because we're Christians and we are judging them. And yet they'll go week after week after week to church and sit next to people who are greedy, who are materialistic, who are committing sexual immorality, but hey, we're sticking it to the bakery, Like that's what we do, don't we? We judge those outside and then we turn a blind eye to sin going on in the church. You know what the opposite should be? Buy a cake. Build a relationship with lost people who need Jesus. And then Paul would say, then deal with the sin within the community of believers. Paul, I mean, it's just, it's, Harsh language, Paul says, if there's people in your church who are unrepentant and they're just living in willful sin and disobedience, he says don't associate with them. Don't, don't even eat with them. Now, eating together in that culture was a much bigger deal than it is in our culture. Um, when you ate with someone, it actually created a social bond with them. It showed that you accepted them and that you had union with them. So Paul could be talking about the Lord's Supper taking communion together, or he might just be talking about regular meals. And I need to stress, all of this is meant to be redemptive in nature. It's similar to verse 5. Our job is to take sin seriously and to cut that person off from meaningful Christian community to hopefully wake them up and to say, what am I doing And by doing so, you avoid giving the appearances. As a church, we just approve sinful conduct. Anything goes. Paul says, no, deal with the sin in your midst. Now, a couple of caveats. Um, Paul is not advocating that only sinless people can be a part of the church. Praise God, because this place would be empty, right? If it was like church discipline, church discipline, church discipline, no one would be here. Paul's not talking about, like Paul is aware that we sin, Like, this week, we've sinned. What Paul is talking about is the type of person who lives in willful disobedience and is unrepentant. Paul's talking about the type of person who persists in the very activities that Jesus has freed them from. I did youth and young adult ministry for a while, and there's a group of young adults in Maple Ridge, and they were claiming to follow Jesus, but I just knew a handful of them every Saturday would go to the bars and get just blackout drunk and then show up on Sunday worshiping Jesus. And I confronted them on it. And do you know what it was? You can't judge us. We're free in Christ, we can live how we want. That's the type of person Paul's talking about, someone who has no regard to holiness and repentance and confession. They just go, I don't care that I'm living in sin, and yet I still wanna be a part of the community. Paul says, you can't have it both ways. That's the type of person that we deal with. Like, if we did this church discipline for every single time anyone sinned, like I said, like, the churches would just be empty, and you would be eating meals alone forever. So, there's a difference between someone who sins and confesses and repents. That's normal Christian life. And so, as a church, you kind of walk this tightrope between being a welcoming community that accepts anyone. And helping those who are stumbling get back to their feet. And then all of a sudden, you can very quickly become a morally lax community where everything goes. You just kind of, churches walk this tightrope, right? Where yes, of course we want everyone to feel welcome. But we also need to deal with sin in our midst. And like I said, lots of churches, we don't do this because it's just tricky. It's very tricky. And if you're not careful, people will become suspicious and they'll deal harsh discipline and it can lead to self-righteousness and exclusivism. That's why church discipline is always done in gentleness and grace with the end goal in mind being that person's redemption and restoration. So I hope you can see living like this goes against so much of what our culture says, about judging people and individualism, like if you, if you went up to, to some of your friends and said, yeah, I am, I'm a part of a church where if, you know, people are, are caught in unrepentant sin, we deal with it. And sometimes we remove them from the church. People would go, you're crazy. They're so judgmental. Why would you go to a place like that? Because it's just so opposite of what the, the world that we live in. And that's kind of the point, so Paul has shown us, what, what do we do in the church about sin? Number one, we mourn it. It should break our hearts. We should grieve sin. Secondly, we deal with it. Uh, so thirdly, that it doesn't spread. And then we fourthly, hold each other to a really high standard of living. Like church discipline is when we come alongside each other because we care about each other's souls. It's actually very unloving to just turn a blind eye to people's sin. It shows that you hate that person. The loving thing to do is to go and confront them because I am worried about your soul. So, to close, just a, a word to, to two different types of people. Um, some of us in this room are stuck in sin, we're, we're, we're the people, right, that Paul's describing. And we're just caught in unrepentant, willful sin. And so my encouragement to you is that if a dear brother or sister confronts you on it, that you would see it as an act of love towards you. That you would respond well. That you would say, what am I doing? Because the goal is your redemption, your restoration. That your response wouldn't be, you're judging me, I'm going to a different church. Now, a a word to those who know that there are people walking in unrepentant sin and you feel from the Holy Spirit a need to, to confront them on it, please, 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 like Galatians 6 says, do it with gentleness and with grace. The goal of any of this is that we are walking alongside, limping together, right? Restoration, being reconciled to Jesus and to one another. And so oftentimes the attitude is sinful where you go, I caught that person. I'm going to go confront them on it. Don't. Because if that's the case, your heart is in a really bad place. You should mourn the sin you see and say, for the sake of their soul, I need to confront them. So Heavenly Father, um, I, I thank you that your word is so practical that you have given us ways to deal with sin in our church communities. Uh, and God, this topic is never fun to talk about because um, we just live in a culture where we just don't like talking about things like that and then we feel shame and guilt and, and I think sometimes we believe the lie that okay, well, if I just ignore it, then it'll just go away. So God, I just pray, I know even as a church here, we have, we have not done this well. Um, I myself have bought into the lie that if I just ignore things, it'll go away. Or I've, I've dealt too harshly with people in the past. So God, I just pray that we would be a church that when we see sin in our community, that we would mourn it, that it would just grieve our hearts because of how holy you are, God. I I pray that we would be a church community that deals with it, whether it's just one-on-one and I go and I tell my brother or sister that they've sinned against me and we patch things up and we move on, or or whether it gets all the way to to, to, to the church leadership being involved. God, I just pray that we would be a church that just deals with sin so that it doesn't spread and cause more and more and more problems. God, help us to, as brothers and sisters, hold each other to a high standard. That when we confront people on their sin, it would not be in a spirit of judgmentalism and being higher and mightier than they are, but it, that it would be done in, in gentleness and grace, that it would be bathed in prayer for this person's soul. God, I just pray that we would see many cases of restoration and reconciliation. People being brought back to you, Jesus. So above all, God, we need much wisdom and much grace. Um, We want to live lives together. We want to disciple one another. We want to grow in holiness together. And so would you just help us do that? So God, just do your work in us. And so I just pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.